This is a powerful and emotional episode with Sarai Salazar, an incredibly gifted and talented trainer working on the front lines in the shelter world. Sara and I discuss many of the emotionally challenging aspects of working in this often thankless industry and shares much of her personal journey along the way. Sarai is a shelter behavior specialist who works primarily with behaviorally challenged and euthanasia listed dogs, especially fear and aggression cases. She earned her bachelor's degree from UC Davis in wildlife, fish, and conservation biology with an emphasis on canine behavior, ecology, and evolution, and has worked at numerous shelters over the last 20 years. While she enjoys working with private clients, her biggest passion is shelter behavior and finding practical solutions for the unique challenges that are faced in the industry. She'll be speaking at the upcoming Aggression in Dogs conference happening from September 29th through October 1st in Chicago, Illinois. Her presentation will focus on practical approaches to behavior change strategies for shelter dogs with a history of aggression. I also want to give a content warning for this episode as we discuss assault and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, welcome back to the Bitey End of the Dog. I'm super excited for this episode. We've been kind of focusing a lot on the human side of the equation when we're talking about dogs and people this season. So I, I'm really excited to chat with Sarayi Salazar here about all the work that she's doing in the shelter world, as well as what she's kind of learned over the years in working with humans and dogs, but focusing on the human element as well. I think it's it's fantastic that we get to chat about this. So welcome to the show, Sarayi. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. So I discovered Sadi's work on Instagram. So I was like, kind of, you know, as a lot of us as trainers do, we're just going through the feeds and, um, I've started seeing like this really great work being done in shelter. I'm like, who is this person? This is really fantastic. And seeing the dogs change and you do such a great job of showcasing sort of like the before and after, you know, without pushing those ethical boundaries of like, let me just get this footage for, for, you know, media sake or like TV kind of training, um, because it's actually very unavoidable in many cases in the shelter environments, much yes. different than working with dogs in, in a private kind of scenario. So that's why I discovered your work. And I'm so excited to have met you and be able to make this connection and help to spread the message that you're sharing with the world. So I'd love to kind of jump right in and find out like what got you into this? What's your background into getting into the shelter side of things? Yes. So I have been working in the pet care industry for over 20 years now. And this is a variety of settings, anywhere from pet stores to doggy daycares. I went to RVT school as well. And I started volunteering at shelters when I was 16 years old and started working at them in my late 20s. I was still continuing my education, so I actually earned my bachelor's in my 30s. I went to UC Davis. I majored in wildlife, fish, and conservation biology, where my emphasis was canine studies. So this includes anything from evolution, genetics, behavior, physiology, anything that had to do with canine studies that I could apply to the pet care world I found fascinating. I actually applied to my following shelter when I was in my OCHEM class, so I should have been paying attention, but I was looking for jobs. It was my last course before graduating, and I saw an opening at Napa County Animal Shelter. And they are a smaller county shelter. They are designated no-kill. And first walking in there, my first impression was all of these dogs that had been sitting on the isolation row for months, and there was no plan for them. Staff could not handle these dogs. They were not ready for adoption, and rescues weren't pulling them. But because they were a no-kill shelter, they were very limited on the, the types of dogs that were eligible for euthanasia. So per county ordinance, an independent behaviorist had to come onto the shelter and evaluate the dog for free. The trainer must also be working under a 501c3. So there were all of these stipulations that made it very difficult for this particular shelter to make any of decisions regarding these dogs. And they were wasting away. I mean, that first week of walking in, just being surrounded by that chaos and that sound and that suffering made such an impact on my life and my everyday the way I approached every day and what I felt when I woke up going to work and I could never get these dogs out of my mind. And unfortunately in this shelter, much like 
many shelters throughout the United States, there was no dedicated behavior department. These staff members are doing everything from the care, the cleaning, adoptions, transport. They're working with fosters. They're doing offsite events. And maybe if you're lucky, you can get five dogs out that day. So these dogs are spending upwards of 24 hours a day inside of their kennel. There was no enrichment program. Volunteers didn't have access to these dogs either. They were in a locked ward. And I remember approaching management and asking, can I put it upon myself to make these dogs my project dogs? And she said yes. So I had already been training with private clients and doing some behavior work in the previous shelters, but never to this degree. And pairing myself with these dogs, working with them over the weeks and getting them to the point where they were either adoptable or eligible to rescue was my main goal. And this required working through my breaks, working through my lunches, staying after, and you know, this overtime isn't counted. The county didn't have a lot of overtime for their staff members. So I was not alone in this. This tends to be the trend in this industry is in order to get the work that we need to get done, we have to work through our lunches and breaks and work free overtime. I knew I could do a lot more forming my own business and branching out to work with multiple shelters because everyone is struggling right now. What we predicted was going to happen with COVID is happening. So according to this, to the statistics, though, there were not more adoptions in 2020. So everyone thinks there was this massive rush of adoptions during that period, but the data really isn't showing that. So most shelters actually closed for adoptions. Most weren't offering that service to the public. They were still taking in strays. But for the most part, we weren't taking in owner surrenders. We weren't conducting adoptions. So one blessing in disguise for that period of time was we were close to the public. We were able to work one-on-one -on -one with these dogs. We were able to maintain our intake numbers a little bit better. So we were able to cope with the workload that we had with the resources that we already had. Now that we're coming out of this, we are seeing shelters have 250 plus wait lists. So people waiting to surrender their dogs. We are getting strays in every single day. These dogs are now, we're seeing seven to 12 month puppies that are extremely under-socialized. They have zero resilience. They have not been exposed to enough positive environments or interactions with people or other animals. So we are in an absolute crisis right now. And I feel we started this organization at the perfect time. So there is such a need for what we do. The other side of my business is my, my partner. He's uh, Nate Valenti. He's an animal control officer who I actually met at the shelter at Napa County Animal oh, Shelter. Wow. And we started working with these challenging dogs together. And it has been such a blessing in my life. And I have found my purpose doing this type of work. Unfortunately, it takes a, a massive emotional and physical toll there's never a finish line. So no matter how much effort we put into one particular dog, there's always going to be 100 more that need our help. So although we started first with working with a lot of private clients and then shifting to shelter and rescue work, that is our main focus right now. So especially these past two years, we are no longer taking private clients. We are focusing specifically with shelters. We work with five shelters in the area and many rescue organizations throughout the United States. So our biggest focus now is behavior evaluations for these behaviorally challenged or euthanasia listed dogs. We started training volunteers and staff on everything from animal handling, defensive handling, behavior modification techniques specific to that industry, post-adoption behavior support. We started enrichment programs and behavior-based foster programs for shelters, and we're helping them develop these very, very crucial components to the overall picture of helping out these dogs. But I never want to look back and think, is there anything else I could have done? And I absolutely know I'm doing the right thing. This is my purpose in life. And I couldn't be more grateful to have this opportunity to work with essentially the throwaway dogs of our, our communities. That's impressive, all of the, all that you've done and such a selfless act to really help so many dogs that need it. And the, now that you're able to spread the information further, it's fantastic. 
So I think some of the listeners are probably thinking, you know, what does a day in the life look like for you? So let's describe a day you're actually going into the shelter environment and working with these dogs. Are you like, you know, just working with tons and tons of really aggressive dogs? Or like, what does it look like on a typical day for you? Kind of walk us through that, like, you know, a good day for you, perhaps. Yes, that is a great question. So right now, our biggest focus is evaluations. So the thing many shelters are struggling with the most is they identify behaviors that are concerning to them and they will call me in and I have shifts that I work so specific days where I go into these shelters and I evaluate dogs. That list can be upwards of 25 dogs for a single day. So some shelters have a new euthanasia list every single day. People need to understand this. Some shelters don't. Some shelters are lucky and when a dog comes along that they feel is will be a challenge to place, then they start thinking about that pathway. Hey, if there's no good prognosis for this dog, then we start considering euthanasia. That is not the case right now. So with the amount of dogs we are getting in, our lists are are 25 or more dogs for a single day. I've got my protective gear. I go in, I start pulling out these dogs and working with them. I write my behavioral evaluations as I'm out in the yard with these dogs. And the whole process is very holistic. So this is the issue I've seen in with behavioral evaluations in the past. They've been very stringent. We are placing these dogs in very unnatural positions and situations and environments and testing them for things that most dogs, even pet dogs, would go over threshold. And for me, I have developed very holistic approach where I will first work cage side. You have to do a lot of body reading. So what is the dog telling me? My biggest quote is sit with the dogs. They will talk to you. So understanding that what we are seeing is not necessarily what's going on internally, um, getting these dogs out, working them in a yard first. So very, very important as well. Um, a lot of people rush that handling and rush these steps in, in the intake rooms or the vet rooms. The dogs are already super stressed out. We got to get them out of the kennel. So a lot of people who are maybe the public is looking in, it may look like play. It may look like I'm just hanging out with the dog in the yard while they're sniffing around and eliminating and decompressing. But so much of that gives us that information that we're looking for. And I will bring the dog into real life room. We'll hang out in there on the couches. There's music playing. There's toys. There's food around. So rather than tethering a dog to the wall and putting a bowl down and reaching into it with a fake hand, how reliable will that information be? So for me, it's getting the dog out of the kennel, how the safety is my biggest concern. So if they're able to be handled safely, the prognosis is much better. I will take these dogs out one by one, write my reports. I will often work with staff or volunteers. Right now we're doing a lot of mentorship programs. So the shelters are partnering one staff member volunteer with me. So they shadow me throughout this process. That is so important. There is only one of me. My goal has always been to teach people to do what I do. I would love if every staff member, regardless if you're front desk or care staff, had some training background, had some knowledge in reading canine body language so we can make a bigger impact. I love teaching group classes as well. So this was something we started a couple years ago. And things like teaching basic obedience or life skills can increase the prognosis for adoption dramatically. So we often pair handlers and dogs in small groups of four or five. We'll have place beds throughout a big yard and we'll work on obedience, engagement, focus work, leash handling skills, all of these things that will translate into the adoptive home as well. Yeah. And you bring up so many important points as well. In my travels around the country and around the world is that one of the common themes or factors is the lack of staffing, the lack of time, the lack of people being able to do the things you're doing. And so, you know, we were just you were kind of mentioning the different assessments that are out there, but a lot of this is just, just a lack of time. And so what you're doing is actually very important, teaching volunteers how to do much of what you're doing. But I think when the outside world looks in and we hear about behavioral euthanasia decisions or, you know, dogs being, you know, housed in, in, these, in these more difficult situations, 
what we don't focus on is the human side of sometimes. We're like so focused on the dogs, of course, which is important, obviously, but we forget that there's humans involved taking care of these dogs day in and day out. And the lack of staffing, the lack of resources uh, is not talked about enough. It's a thankless, it really is a thankless job in so many of the places I've visited. You know, shout out to all of the shelter staff around the world that are doing this daily. So it's kind of along those lines, you know, where do you find the strength to keep doing this? You know, because it's it is a thankless job. And a lot of people don't all they focus is on those decisions. They hear about, oh, that person's bad because they decided on behavioral euthanasia. I could have taken that dog and I could have fixed that dog. Or why didn't they reach out to me? And they don't see the other side. So where do you find the strength in all of this to keep going and doing what you're doing? Thank you so much for bringing this up because I see this trend often on social media where people will post a dog that needs to be networked that's on a euthanasia list. And many of the comments will read things like, oh my God, they're murderers. How can they sleep at night? These people don't care. They're heartless. They're, they're monsters. These shelter staff are painted as monsters. And of course, there are bad eggs in every industry. Of course, there are people who may appear to be indifferent, but sometimes that indifference is a coping mechanism. And unless you've been in that position where you have hundreds of dogs to take care of, and there were holidays where I was the only staff member working Christmas Day while everyone else was at home with their families, and here I am trying to feed 200 dogs and 100 cats and make sure everyone gets even five minutes out of their kennel and that all the poop is scooped up. That burden is unspeakable. I mean, for me, what keeps me going is as much as I would want it to be the success stories and I hang on to that positivity, it is the dogs that I've lost. And actually, I I skipped over this story when you asked me how I got into this, but Whiskey Foxtrot was, it was a dog that most definitely everything that is fueling this business and what I do in our mission. So he was a dog that I was paired with about halfway through my stint at Napa County Animal Shelter, a two-year-old male German Shepherd intact, no staff could handle him. So I worked with him over several months and he ended up being okay with me, but we were never able to generalize his behaviors, his trust and this relationship with anyone else. And that is because of the lack of time. I absolutely took all my extra time and put it into this dog, but I can't realistically expect others to do that. They have their own focuses. They have their own jobs. And ultimately the decision was made from another trainer to euthanize him. And because... He trusted me and he felt safe with me. I volunteered to deliver that injection myself. And it was the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And a part of me left with him that day. It it, it died. And it's that feeling of never wanting another dog to meet that fate if I am able to intervene and do something about it that pushes me every single day. And I'm glad that you brought this up because even speaking to other people, these past two months have been insanely challenging. We have put so much effort. There was a dog soul that I posted. So we put so much time and effort into getting him out of the shelter. They gave me 24 hours. They said, you have 24 hours to get this dog out. And I had already built a relationship with him. We were already going outside. He was fantastic. But again, in that kennel, All we see is barking and lunging, and it's a manifestation of that stress. And I am the only one that was able to see past that. That's what I want to do is to teach people what you see is not the full story. We have to understand that these dogs are placed in the absolute worst position possible, and we are judging them based on that. Who are we to judge them? If we as humans were placed in that position and that expectation was held steady, so many of us would fail. And it's such a tricky line because we also have to recognize the position that we're in. We cannot save every dog. There's no place for many of these dogs. Rescues are full. Everyone is full. And the direction that we're going in, that's not letting up anytime soon. So self-care has been a challenge for me this entire time, being mindful that I cannot fill someone else's cup if mine isn't full. So definitely taking that time off. I've been very much better about that this past year. So making sure we we get some time off to recharge. But 
I can never see myself doing anything else. I hope there is not a need for what we do in the future. That is my goal. I hope I have to find a new passion and I hit a, a midlife crisis later on where what do I do with my life? But in the meantime, there, all I see is these, these dogs sitting in what is essentially a prison to no fault of their own and they are, are getting killed for it. So I need everyone to understand who's listening. I, I hear you and I see you and I validate what you're feeling because so many of us feel like we're drowning. And this is a community effort. We need to understand this is not a shelter problem. We keep looking at shelters as if they're the ones that are giving up their dogs and being put in that position themselves, but it, it's not the case. So... That is the fuel for me, is every single dog that I've lost along the way, knowing that this help will always be needed, but that for me pushes me to teach everyone else. So having the opportunity to anyone who will listen, you can do what I do, it's not magic. Yes, it took a lot of knowledge and skill set and building that over the years and becoming comfortable. And that also included bites and maulings. I am not immune to that. I've had very, very bad attacks that have required stitches, it's scary. And people need to understand this is such a complex situation. It's not just keep the dogs alive and figure out what to do with them. That human side, the fear. I mean, I went back to work. I had such a severe injury that needed stitches. So I had my left breast torn open, my nipple torn open by a 92 pound dog. If my boyfriend hadn't been there to intervene, who knows what has happened? And that is a position so many of these shelter staff are in. We're not working with private clients. These dogs aren't muzzled and leashed. We don't have a behavior history on them. All we see is, again, this, this barking and lunging dog. Sometimes they're friendly, but they snap. You know, every single living thing has its limit. And we are surrounded by such suffering. And, and day by day, we see the physical and mental deterioration of these dogs and we have to support each other in the end. It all comes back to that. When emotions run high and we're working, every single person is working this hard to save these dogs, we tend to use each other as scapegoats and we pit ourselves against one another when we all want the same thing. First of all, recognizing that, yes, we, we are all suffering in this, but we're suffering together and we can support each other, I think is a big change that we need to see in this industry, especially the rescue and shelter worlds. That's the only way we're going to win this fight or even get our heads above water is working together. So doing what I can and playing my part in this is teaching people the skills and the knowledge that I've gained over the years. They can learn from my mistakes. They don't have to do it, but their hearts and their minds need to be open. I so, so appreciate you sharing all of these points because, again, it's a message that isn't understood or even heard. I mean, you really have to be in those trenches, so to speak, and to really understand and see that side of it, the things that you're seeing, the decisions you have to make, the dogs that you're seeing, the dogs that you make connections with, and you're the only person that that dog is connected to, and you're the one that yeah. has to say goodbye. That's tough. It's, it's hard. Yeah. Writing that sentence, recommend for behavioral euthanasia, every time I write that, I, I feel like I have yeah. to throw up. And I take that with me when I drive home. And that's every week. I condemn dogs to die every single week. And people on my Instagram, especially, I, I'm very honest and open about sharing our victories and, and sharing our, not our failures, but when we don't get the outcome that we want, because it is the very real reality that we're facing and people need to know that. Yeah, yeah. And your Instagram page, I recommend, and we'll share it in the show notes, of course, but I do recommend yes. because it is very uplifting and a very, very, uh, just, just seeing the success stories, as you mentioned, is uh, I mean, really does support a lot of people out there and, and the work they're doing, you know. Yes. So I'm feeling this resiliency from you. So there's not a lot of people like you. And I, and I talk about this, and I actually talked about it in a couple other episodes. There's just something about people, the people that are working day in and day out with, with aggression cases or like in the horrific experiences that you've had that you just keep going. There's just like this sort of calmness in a way. It's, it's this... I was talking about with Patricia McConnell, we we're kind of talking about resiliency as well. There's just something there and I don't know what it is. And there's some 
somewhere to be discovered, this like secret sauce of like being able to keep doing this. So a lot of us can do it once or maybe can stomach it once, but you're there doing it over and over and over. Or the people that are working aggression cases and seeing clients breaking down in front of them crying over and over and over because of these difficult decisions. What has shaped you to be so resilient, you know, even in the face of making these difficult decisions? In the trenches. I mean, you're you're in it. I mean, you're as deep into it as you can get in this world of working with dogs. So, what has helped you become so resilient and like so strong in the work that you do? Yes, I I like to say that so much of my life has been shaped from situations of coming out of dark rooms, and even now, um, many of the videos that you'll see on my Instagram is literally me sitting in a dark room on the floor, a dirty kennel floor when there's a dog bearing teeth on the other side of a fence and I'm, I'm just sitting there with them. We were chatting before and I explained that I am not doing this work in spite of everything that's happened to me, but because of what's happened to me. And, you know, we're working on, on writing a book and sharing my experiences and how they tie into the work that I do. But I see so much of myself in these dogs and even the dogs with complicated bite histories. We have had shelter dogs that have had 37 level four bites. You know, it's, it's yes, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> he's been adopted. <laughs> Yay, Snoopy. <laughs> it always comes back to what you see is not what you get. And I had a, a very tumultuous childhood. My father was very physically abusive, leading up to breaking a glass face on my head. He beat my sister very, very badly when we were kids as well. I was scared to live at home. I was scared of my home. And that is not something that I found I could relate to my peers to. You know, most of my friends, I felt, weren't dealing with this level of domestic violence in their home. And for me, my biggest escape was college. So leaving this extremely chaotic and unsafe environment at home and finally getting out to college. And the last night of winter break, I was roofied and raped by someone who had been my friend, I thought, for several years. And that night changed everything for me. I attempted suicide 30 days later. So that is how my parents found out was the hospital bill. And... I had to start my life over and I had to go back home. So again, I was put in this environment where I, f I felt unsafe and now I was trying to heal in an unsafe environment. And that's exactly what I see in these dogs, right? We are rehabilitating them. We are working with them in a prison, in an environment where they don't feel safe. And you know what? When I wasn't feeling well, I lashed out. I had so much misplaced anger on the people trying to help me. And there were days where I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't eat. I was diagnosed with mental illness, uh, bipolar disorder and PTSD. So now I had violence in the home. I had this rape I was dealing with and now mental illness. I dropped out of school. I couldn't hold jobs. I mean, my whole life was turned upside down. But you know what the only constant was, was these dogs. So no matter what changed, no matter if I didn't feel like getting up for my sake, there was something else that needed me. And it is such a spiritual experience sitting with them in the darkness and there's no one else but you and this dog. And they are a mirror of what I used to be. And they're my redemption. I'd be so lost without the work that I do because it is my salvation too and my chance to, to start over and to live this life where I am in control and I'm able to do everything that I've wanted to do because one person believed in me. And one person believes in them. That, that's exactly what happened to me. I remember my friend Adrian would come to my room. I hadn't showered or eaten in three days. He'd say, let's go for a walk. And all it took was one 15-minute walk to make a huge change in my outlook and how I felt and how the rest of the week would go, knowing that I had the power to do that for these dogs when no one else believes in them, when everyone else says they're a lost cause, just put them down. There are enough problems we're dealing with in society. There is no time or room for these dogs in our lives and in our communities. But we all deserve at least a chance, whether you're a human or these dogs. And again, so many of them were just 
fine in their homes and they end up in this situation for circumstances completely out of their control. So it's almost like a religion to me going to work. I've never been so excited. And that includes knowing that the outcome for some of the dogs that I'm going to work with today, this day is not going to be what I want to have this purpose. It's such a blessing for me. That's the biggest reason why I could never see myself doing anything else is because of that relationship that I've built. And it's some people may call it trauma bonding, right? But it's so much bigger than that. This is so much bigger than me. But to be able to relate to them on on such through that darkness, and I am comfortable with that darkness. And perhaps that's why I was attracted to this type of work, but just being able to give them the chance that I was given and to see that same transformation and metamorphosis that I have experienced over and over in my life is incredible to me. Incredible. Well, I first want to thank you for making yourself vulnerable and and sharing your story of survival. I mean, it's so powerful and so moving. At the same time, it just I think there's many listeners that probably can relate. And if you're listening to this episode now, we're recording it in February here, but this episode's somewhere in June, you'll probably be hearing it. And it's right after Patricia McConnell's very powerful episode and how trauma can affect us in so many different ways and how so many powerful outcomes can occur from our past traumas in the way you've turned it into your story of survival and positivity and helping these dogs, as well as now, I'm sure many listeners are listening and hearing your story. So thank you for for sharing that. Absolutely. So I'd like to kind of continue along this, you know, in the work that you're doing, because, you know, you mentioned you've got these difficult decisions. You have you see these dogs and it, you personally relate to them so deeply because of your past experiences. But then you have these decisions you need to make, the behavioral euthanasia decisions, and you have to battle against you know this, this no-kill sort of theme and that's pervasive in some of our culture. Not all of our culture, but I think it's a term that's used a lot in the shelter world. So how do you... F- navigate that conversation, you know, this whole, you know, the difference between no kill and the, what you have to do in those difficult decisions, especially, especially with what you've gone through. Thank you. And that is something that people really need to understand as well is maybe people have the idea that I go in and evaluate these dogs and I only recommend behavioral euthanasia for dogs that display a clear level of aggression to the point where they are unhandleable. So, From the shelter standpoint, their main mission is public safety. So a lot of people have this belief that shelters exist for pet adoptions. That is a secondary service for municipal shelters. So government shelters were created and were founded for the purpose of keeping strays off the streets, maintaining public safety. So it first started with livestock. So it allowed farmers or ranchers to reclaim their livestock for money. There was very little financial incentive for dogs or cats. So those were generally cold in the beginning. Starting in the 60s, 70s, we really started pushing the idea that, hey, the family dog can be adopted from your local pound or your local animal shelter. And since then, adoption has been a cornerstone for American families. That is kind of the past. So now what we're seeing with such a high influx of intakes and the amount of dogs that we are currently working with in shelters, we have to take so many factors into consideration. So it's not just the blatantly aggressive dogs, quote unquote, that get euthanized. So this is the main issue with the no kill initiative is many are largely underfunded or unfunded completely. Now shelters are obligated to hold on to animals and are granted, generally speaking, a 10% euthanasia limit. So they have to have a 90% or above live release rate. That sounds great on paper, right? We are getting more dogs out. These shelters aren't allowed to euthanize at the rate they were doing before. But what is happening with these dogs? Many of these dogs, again, we have 200 other friendly dogs that aren't getting adopted. We used to see lines out the doors for puppies. Now puppies are growing up in shelters. So what do we do with this other section of the population where they're not ready for adoption yet? 
but they're not maybe clear candidates for euthanasia. So we take so many factors into consideration when talking about the prognosis or the pathway for a specific animal. What is the demographic of adopters that come into the shelters? Most of them are families. Most of them are senior citizens or more inexperienced handlers or owners that have never had anything beyond or seen anything beyond separation anxiety or maybe some leash reactivity. Whereas many of the dogs that are being surrendered have bite histories. So there's a history of resource guarding in the home, dog on dog aggression. Many of these dogs have documented kills on livestock or other dogs. What if the dog bit a child multiple times in the household? What if, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, what if, Barking dogs are okay on the podcast, yeah. not to worry. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I've got two right now, both bite cases. <laughs> so this guy, yeah, he was actually pulled 15 minutes before his euthanasia date, the one that we have wow. now. Wow. Yes, so yes, close yes. call. He's, he's um, allowed to bark. <laughs> yes, he is. He's yes, actually a yes. great example of this because he had a bite incident in the shelter. He's very mouthy. So the handler at that point in time had a little bit thinner skin. So although he, what, from what we gathered, he displayed the same mouth pressure when mouthing other people, but no bites broke the skin. This bite broke the skin. They're automatically placed on the euthanasia list, rescue only with 72 hours to get them out. So those are the limitations that we are working with on these dogs. Most people don't understand. We don't have infinite time, resources, staffing. These shelters are out of room. We're doubling up on kennels. There's a huge turnover for staff. Many are still continuing to get sick with COVID, the flu, and everything else that's going around this season. They're still trying to take vacations because they absolutely deserve it, just like anyone else working in any industry. So we're left with these tough decisions. We cannot save every single dog as much as we would like to. So understanding where we draw that line, and that line may move throughout the week, depending on where that shelter is at and the workload that they currently experience or the staffing that they currently have. And rather than painting the shelter staff or people like me who evaluate dogs as evil for doing what we have to do, why don't we start looking at why these dogs are in that position in the first place? What can we do on the intake side of it? Or what can we do to support our communities so these dogs don't end up in shelters in the first place? And that has been a huge focus and a huge shift in the shelter industry is community-based services, especially behavioral and medical, to support the challenges these owners are facing. And that in turn has a trickle effect. There's fewer dogs in the shelters. The shelters don't have to ask for more room or more money because there's fewer dogs for them to care for. Now the dogs that are there maybe do have to be there. Maybe they are a threat to public safety, but the shelters are now able to focus on these harder, more challenging dogs, call in specialists to help assist them working with them. And now we have a better grasp and ability to cope with everything that's been going on. So it's not black and white. People really need to understand. And from the human side of it, again, we're bonding with these dogs. They're essentially our dogs before they go home to you, before they get pulled to a shelter. Every single staff member I've talked to has their own Whiskey Foxtrot. They have their own story just like me, where they have personally worked with, bonded with, and gotten some progress with the dog. But in the end, the decision was made to euthanize them because of all these other factors that are outside of our control. That doesn't make us bad people. That just means that we have to find other solutions and come to grasp with the reality of the industry right now. Oh, so much wisdom there and so much insight that if you're listening to this episode right now and you really want to help the shelter staff out there, share this episode because just that little segment right there packs so much information that needs to get out there into the world for people to hear. So really, I thank you for sharing all that and condensing it so nicely too into this thank you. perfect I'm getting bite, better so. at becoming concise, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like a good spokesperson too. So I am going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more on the behavior side of things too. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment.
Hey friends, don't forget to join me for the fourth annual Aggression in Dogs conference, either in person or online from Chicago, Illinois, happening from September 29th through October 1st, 2023. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you've heard on the podcast, including Sue Sternberg, Dr. Tim Lewis, Dr. Christine Calder, Sindhor Bangal, Sarah Streming, Sean Will and Masa Nishimuta, and many more. Head on over to AggressiveDog.com and click on the Conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts in veterinary behavior cases to working with aggression in shelter environments to intra-household dog-dog aggression. We'll also have special guest MCs, Taylor Barconi and Gio Arcade, who are sure to bring their positive and uplifting vibe to the conference. And as usual, you'll find a wonderful, kind, caring, and supportive community at the conference, both in person and online. I also want to take a moment to thank one of our wonderful sponsors this year, Pets for Vets. Did you know that approximately 1 million shelter animals are euthanized in the U.S. every year? At the same time, many of our country's veterans are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, anxiety, and or depression. Pets for Vets founder and executive director, Clarissa Black, created a solution for these problems by rescuing and training animals for veterans. Pets for Vets has a unique program model that customizes each match to create what is called a super bond. Each animal is selected and trained specifically for each veteran based on matching personality and temperament profiles. Additionally, Clarissa has developed an assessment protocol called ACE or ACE that allows other animals the choice and agency to participate in the Pets for Vets program based on their response to multiple stimuli. Pets for Vets has a positive reinforcement mentality at its core for animals, veterans, and trainers. In addition to helping veterans and rescue animals, Clarissa has created a generous opportunity for positive reinforcement trainers to join her organizations. Trainers are able to participate from anywhere in the U.S. while receiving stipends, professional development opportunities, and maintaining a flexible schedule. For more information, please visit PetsForVets.com. That's PetsForVets.com. All right, welcome back. We're here with Sadayi Salazar, and we are talking about a lot in this episode. It's been a really, really deep and insightful episode, so I thank you again. I would love to jump, kind of switch gears a little bit towards, since we are an aggression podcast, and again, check out Sadayi's work on Instagram because you can see some of the techniques, but I'd love to kind of jump into that. Like, you go in, you got a dog that's barking and lunging at you at the kennel door, so a lot of what we might typically see, but I really want to touch upon the differences because it's a whole different world. You know, we see things like when you hear like even something like a slip lead and in some circles, you're like, oh my gosh, slip lead, you, you're terrible. You know, don't ever touch those <laughs> slip leads. But in the shelter environment, it's just a common tool for moving a dog from point A to point B. Yes, they can be abused just like anything else, but it's like the last thing on somebody that's running 50 dogs in and out a day to be thinking, oh yeah, now I've got to like put on a harness on every single dog just because somebody says so. So, you know, in terms of the aggression stuff, we are approaching kennel like much different. Dog's already going to be over threshold. So we we don't really think about threshold in those moments, but what are some of your kind of tried and true things that you do? You know, so counter conditioning, is there certain techniques you use to approach kennels? How do you make friends with these dogs? So first and foremost is being mindful of the environment that they're in. So again, we are placing these dogs in what is perhaps one of the most stressful, acute stressful situations they can be in, but they're experiencing that chronically. So we have high cortisol levels throughout the day. These dogs aren't getting enough sleep at all, even at night. So we do see periods where usually around lunchtime, most of the dogs tend to calm down and again later on in the afternoon or evening. I do use a slippery. Thank you for bringing up a slippery. <laughs> so just so everyone knows, I love harnesses and long lines. That being said, one of the shelters that I work with has no collars on their dogs. So we're they don't have any collars to begin with. Slip leads are absolutely, I feel, the safest and quickest way to transport dogs quickly, get them out of their kennel. So one nice thing I like doing is making a nice big loop. But before we even get to that point, 
I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent. My number one trick to this is just classical counter conditioning and desensitization. So there are a lot of great approaches to working aggression cases. So we have cat and bat, which I personally love using with private clients. But keeping these limitations in mind, we don't often have time to pull multiple handlers and multiple dogs or work with teams. So we are working triggers using those approaches. We need multiple people. Again, these staff members have hundreds of other dogs to care for. They barely get their cleaning done on time. They can't even break all these dogs. So having this expectation that staff members are going to have even 20 minutes to work with one dog is out the window right now. So I just want to interject when you say yes. when you say break these dogs, meaning giving them a break. <laughs> just yes, because so, so. we have <laughs> there's some that might take that the wrong way, but that's sorry. Yes, thank you about. for that clarification. I mean, break them <laughs> yeah. from their kennels. Yes. yes. Um. So that is my main goal: is to get the dog out of their kennel into a yard, that nice open space. They don't feel less pressured. But again, what is the situation like when we're first approaching these dogs? Or me, for instance, when I'm working an aggression case, they are trapped. They have no way to get out and they know it. So they are going to display a much higher intensity in terms of behavioral responses than we would see in many everyday interactions because we're pushing them to the very edge. So being very mindful that, again, this may be a response and often is a response that is rooted in fear, distress, anxiety, and approaching it that way rather than I need to get this dog to comply and let him touch me. I call it the compliance lens. So we tend to rely a lot on obedience to, I think, as a whole in the dog training industry to try to coax these changes in our dogs. But I'm all about creating a new conditioned emotional response. So rather than trying to force the dog to get them to do what I want to do, I want the dog to feel better about the situation. Situation. So in turn, we get a different behavioral response for something that the staff have to do every single day, like pass by a kennel or feed them food. So honestly, the biggest trick to this all is just feeding through the kennel. So nice classical counter conditioning. What we're doing is pairing the sight of a person. So that's a very common trigger in shelter dogs. Even if they're friendly, they will often start becoming, again, that stress, that distress, that anxiety gets to them. Every time a person passes by, they'll react. So they start barking, lunging, baring teeth. Some may even start air snapping. So creating a new positive association, and this can be very simple. We just hang little treat, either pails or dishes outside of each kennel. I always recommend that every staff member carry a treat pouch with them as well. Food is such a powerful tool. There is so much that is outside of our control in this industry. One way we can easily work with these dogs as we're going on our day-to-day care is just feeding them every time we pass by. These dogs look at me and think, oh my God, the hot dog lady is coming. Oh my God, there's a chicken nugget lady. That's what I want to be seen as. Once we get to that point, we can start generalizing it with other people. If one person in particular makes that, forms that bond and builds that trust. Once we get one person, it's just a matter of repetition at that point. Generally speaking, I have one test. I call it the door latch test. So I'll go over this in the conference as well. It is probably my very simple number one test or temperature check that will kind of, I don't want to say set in stone, determine the prognosis of a dog, but how they react when I open that latch and open the door is going to tell us a lot about how comfortable they're going to be moving forward. So, so many staff members will just see that aggression. Again, it's defensive aggression, but they'll still see that aggression. If I open the door and the dog runs away, that's going to be a much safer case for most handlers, that's volunteers and staff to work with, than a dog that is trying to burst through, that is biting at that kennel door. So speaking realistically, again, keeping that liability of the shelters in mind, if most staff members or all of them are unable to safely even leash a dog, handle them or touch them in any way, the prognosis is generally going to be very poor. But I think most people have been hesitant to even open the door or try that. But again, what we see is not always what we get. So many dogs will run. They'll run away. They'll run to the back of the kennel and understanding, yes, it is fear-based. It is stress-based. I can work with this. It's going to take a little bit longer, but the liability is much less than, again, one that is displaying offensive aggression. It's. I also understand the 
the safety part of it. So I know that was a big part of our conversation before was empowering these staff and volunteers to not only equip themselves with tools that will keep them safe, but knowing how to use them. So the more we empower and teach these handlers, these staff and volunteers, the more comfortable and prepared they will be to deal with these cases. But after you've done it over and over again, you start to pick up on these patterns. And I am now at the point where I feel very comfortable. Hey, this is going to take a long time. This is safe. This isn't. And I will still, okay, I'm going to be completely honest too. I will push the envelope myself. I don't know if it's an ego thing, but sometimes I will come up with a dog law, say, you know, this probably isn't safe. I won't have other staff work with them, but I'll, I'll see how far I can get with that particular dog. And sometimes it ends in a bite. It's very tricky line, but I think that empowerment is such a huge part of it, too, and just teaching them. And this is why the mentoring and shadowing is so important. This is a huge issue with evaluations. My notes are going to be a lot different than someone else's who worked with that dog a different day. So just like us, our tolerances and our thresholds fluctuate throughout the day, depending on the day, depending on the hour, depending on the week, how much sleep we got. Am I hungry? I'm going to be way less tolerable of certain things than if I got a good night's sleep. I'm feeling well fed. So being mindful of that and just approaching it in a manner where we can make the most out of that time and having that person with me so I can explain this is what I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. right? This is why I'm approaching this dog this particular way. This is why I'm using these techniques. And a big question is always how how do you know that it's safe to go in that kennel? And that is my biggest test is that door latch test. And many dogs will turn and flee at that point. And that's when you can observe and say, this is going to be a little bit safer. It's going to take a little longer, but it's not that blatant. They have a picture in their heads. And so many of these dogs are just labeled aggressive. That label doesn't give us any information. Right. Right. And I think subconsciously there, you're actually just doing a lot of that first because you want to protect the volunteers because we know volunteers are hard to come by in the shelter environment, at least to keep them there for a long time, right? (laughs) We have three at one shelter. That's it. Yeah. 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 And that's that's to the general theme of traveling around again, meeting lots of shelter staff is one of the hardest aspects is getting volunteers, training them and then keeping them because they often, they don't stick around for long or it's it's because it's tough work. It really is. Okay, so let's dive into, you get the dog out of the kennel, you start working Mm -hmm. with them, you're out in the yard. Do you have anything that, you know, that you found works the best in, in, in most of your cases. So you're building a relationship with them. You don't put any hard training pressure. You're not like sit down, stay and all those no, things. No, it's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> so um, most of it is allowing the dog to decompress and approach when they feel ready. So I guess it is kind of like the bat approach where I'm giving the dog enough agency to choose when and how to interact with me by utilizing open space. So as big of a yard as possible, this will often mean I will always leave the drag leash on as well. So very important for my safety. I don't know how this dog is gonna react. There's no owner history on it. I've never worked with it before. So for safety's sake, I do leave a drag leash on, but for the first 15, 20 minutes, I am sitting down, no hands on this dog. I'm not trying to interact with them at all. Again, I'm that they have likely been in their kennel for over a week, especially if it's a dog I evaluate for aggressive behavior that they're seeing at the shelter. The dog probably hasn't been out of their kennel in weeks to months. So a big part of my approach is allowing the dog to urinate, eliminate, sniff around, decompress, and take in that environment. Even though it's outside and it may be peaceful to me, it's a whole new place for this dog. So many of them, you can see they're rapid scanning. They're still a little bit on edge. So one of the mistakes I see a lot of staff is they move in too quickly with that handling. So vet staff as well, we have had so many instances recently where dogs have been great with the care staff, but we've seen issues with the vet staff. And the approach is many care staff will leash the dog up, take them out into the yard and leave them alone for 20 minutes. Whereas vet staff have 20 other dogs to see within that hour. So they leash the dog up, take them into the medical room or intake room and then start their exam right away. So we get that difference in in observations and interactions. And now we have competing reports for this dog and we're like, hey, what do we do with them? So 
that prognosis is helped so much by just allowing that dog to do whatever they need to do for the first 15, 20 minutes. And when I start handling, back in the day, I mean, we would hold a dog by the leash and just start massaging down its back like... Again, this dog doesn't know me. I've built no relationship with it. Who am I? So how, how can I have this expectation that he's going to be okay with it? So again, allowing that agency for that dog to approach. When they approach me, I'll often just hold my hands out to my side. I'm not reaching towards them to pet. I'll just hold an open palm out to see how they interact with my palm. Temperature and consent checks are so important, not only at this stage, which sets the tone for the relationships, the ongoing relationships this dog will have with other staff members. If I mess this up and move too fast, that will stick around. So that dog will remember that. So it's definitely my job to go as slowly as possible to, again, granting these dogs as much consent as I can while maintaining my safety, but also keeping that time limit in mind that's always just looming over our heads. Mm. And I'm going to ask you a question you probably get a lot, but Mm -hmm. you've now handled thousands of dogs, I'm sure. So if you had a average number of times you need to greet a dog where they're actually you feel like this dog really likes me now or you get to the point of like this dog has made some great changes or you feel is adoptable or whatever the issues let's say it's a dog to human aggression case and or is displaying behaviors they're just saying go away kind of behavior yes on average like so if you take like all of the dogs you work with that have that issue what's the average number of times you need to meet with them before they're like two to three It can be as little as one, especially if we're looking at a case with defensive aggression and it's mainly rooted in fear. Mm -hmm. I like to have a little bit longer sessions with these dogs, but once I get them out of that kennel that first time, usually they don't reset a second time. If it's a little bit more offensive, then the sessions take a little bit longer. But that is one thing I've been really trying to demonstrate to any handler working with shelter dogs specifically, is generally speaking, it does not take a long time. And I feel a big reason for that is because I'm so patient and slow in the beginning. I'm setting this tone where I'm allowing the dog to to pick and choose again how and how often they want to interact with me, setting that tone for future relationships. Again, we're conditioning, we're counter conditioning. So it's not magic. I don't think it takes very, very long, but I'm also cognizant that this is just one dog. So if we multiply that by say a shelter has a hundred challenging dogs, it's going to be very difficult for us to reach that milestone. But for a specific dog, so some have taken several months and others, I'd say most fall between one and three sessions and they often range from 20 minutes to 45. So it's really not much longer than that. I don't have much more time than that if I want to get through my list. And that also, I want to be cognizant that because there is a time limit, I will sometimes... I will definitely not sometimes have to tweak how fast we approach something. So one particular dog, Magnolia, that I've been working with, I had her out of the, so the shelter kind of gave me a deadline with her. She's been great with me, but because that deadline was given, now I had to speed up the generalization process, which can take a long time in a shelter, given that they only have a few minutes a day to interact with this dog. So what I did was I took her out. She was great with me on leash. We started doing trail walks with other staff members. We started with one, then moved to two, no more than two at a time. She has done great with these people and it's only taking about five to 10 minutes of their day. So realistically speaking, I can approach management, I can start the relationship building process with this dog, but we can generalize it within five to 10 minutes in one day. And by the end of the session, because we start working outside of the kennel, she's eating out of their hands. I mean, she's just blossoming beautifully. I might have not approached that method if we had a little bit more time. So I I do recommend most staff start building that relationship cage side before they even reach in and attempt to take a dog like this out. If time is a factor and these shelters have given me a deadline, I'll find a way to speed it up. But again, keeping ethics in mind. So I'm constantly reading her, engaging how she's doing. I don't want to push her over what she feels comfortable with because that will be counterproductive. But making sure that we're moving at a pace that not only everyone feels comfortable with, but that will increase her prognosis and, and make the prospect of her leaving alive much more viable. Mm, mm, so 
shout out to Magnolia and, yes, and the work you're so, doing. That's so great. <laughs> and everything you're saying, it really echoes with you know the same thing I've seen in my clients. You know that one to three sessions is typically the average for the dog to say, "Hey, this guy's actually pretty cool." Yeah. the hot dog guy, or whatever. You know, yes. but it's it's also more so than that. I mean, it's it is yes, counter conditioning, but it's building that relationship, that trust. The dog can feel safe because safety is really mm-hmm. the most important thing, right? For the dog to feel safe. And when we create that by what we do and yes. how we move and how we interact with the dog, it just, it really is where the magic happens. So you're going to be talking, uh, also speaking at the Aggression and Dogs Conference. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're going to be presenting on there. Yeah. So my Instagram, that's probably our, our biggest social media channel, really my only social media channel right now. <laughs> but my videos are set up in a way where I have clips of usually before and afters of me working with these dogs with, you know, some nice music in the background. And my goal for this conference is to not have that music in the background, but to explain exactly what I'm doing step by step with these case studies. Magnolia is one of them. And what I really like about her in particular is because I have had so many realistic limitations placed on me. So when you first approached me about speaking, I'm definitely using cases that I've worked with in the past, but I wanted to start picking new case studies so it could be even more relevant with what we're dealing with in this time and place. And when the shelter messaged me like, hey, what are we going to do with her? I got so stressed out. My first thought was, oh, this is going out the window. Now I can't use this case. But of course I can. I absolutely should because she specifically is a great example of how the fate of many of these dogs, even if we start making progress, that limit is always looming behind us. So again, her outcome isn't guaranteed, even though we've had tremendous progress with this particular dog. I wanted to show not only what I do and why I do what I do with them. So what I'm seeing, explaining the behaviors, the differences between the offensive and the defensive aggression. I also want to give cases where I fail the dog. So I want to demonstrate this is in particular why this dog was recommended for behavioral euthanasia. So people can see the complexity of it, how it's not just, oh, it bit someone in the household, it's getting put down. So very much we try to take as much into context, but illustrating the difficulties and how we've had to tweak things when not only so much is out of our control, but so much is unknown, right? Mm -hmm. So many of these behaviors aren't translated into the home and vice versa. So that's one of the reasons why shelters have moved away from food guarding tests is because we have found through studies that it is not a reliable indicator of behavior in the home. So definitely all encompassing, I will focus on case studies specifically of dogs that are deemed aggressive, put on the euthanasia list, and I'm given a deadline. So very much with that time in mind, with staffing limitations, resource limitations, space limitations, what do we do to get this dog out alive? And again, my focus is techniques and applications that can be easily translated into the everyday care tasks of these shelters, keeping in mind everything that they're facing. And that's the biggest difference I've seen between training with or working with private client dogs versus the shelter dogs. It's there's other people making a call. We don't have them going into a home where we can manage the environment and the triggers and the exposure to these triggers. And again, give this feeling of safety that is very much lacking in the shelter that we don't have control over. So it's all about increasing the prognosis of these euthanasia listed dogs with very practical, relatively easy techniques. So I want to always teach people in a way where everyone can learn. So there, of course, are techniques that we can apply that require more skill and more knowledge. And we are not working with that demographic of people. So how can we, again, empower these caretakers to be able to improve the livelihoods of these dogs in the long run and their communities as well? It's a community service. We have to remember that first and foremost. So um, that will be my case. Yes. Yeah. All about the people and the dogs and working together. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that talk. It sounds like you're going to pack in so much useful information. And you yes. mentioned your Instagram as well. Um, so can you tell people where to find that and anything else you're working on? Absolutely. So we are at Wolfmother K9. That's letter K number nine altogether. 
And we do mostly, so we showcase a lot of our shelter work there. And please feel free to reach out at any point during direct message. You can leave us a comment. We also have our website, www.wolfmotherk9.com. We are working on a YouTube channel. So that is something we want to have up and coming to, again, maybe break down a little bit better of what we're doing. I love the way I, I set up my videos, but I don't do a lot of explaining within the actual videos themselves. So that is going to be a big focus of ours. And we're also creating um, videos for shelters to be playing in their lobbies. So if people have dogs that they're surrendering at that point in time, hey, maybe we can give, if not information that will help them, maybe provide resources. So another avenue for them to hopefully get the help they need so we prevent the dogs from showing up in the shelters in the first place. Another thing we're working on, we have a lot. So it's an app, it's a QR code that will help showcase videos and photos of dogs outside of their kennels. That is so huge. So most of the public, when they enter a shelter, all they see is a very, very stressed out dog in what is essentially a prison cell. So they move on. They feel that that dog isn't necessarily the best fit for their lifestyle or what they're looking. No one wants a barking, lunging dog. But if we were able to see that dog in the play yard or in in a foster home or in the office. So we're big proponents of office dogs as well. So using shelter dogs, giving them a little break to just hang out in the office with the staff there would increase again, the adoptability and prognosis of so many of these dogs. So we've got a lot in the works right now. We're creating online master programs for shelters to use wherever they may be at. Again, a lot of what we do can be shown best in person, but there are absolutely ways we can utilize videos and other means to explain, again, what we're doing and why we're doing it, because our biggest goal is to empower every single person that wants to learn to be able to improve the lives of shelter dogs wherever they may be at, in their own communities, in their own backyards. There are dogs that are dying that need the help. So... Thankfully, there are a lot of people that are interested in learning, and I'm learning along the way. So continuing education has to be a goal of everyone as well. So again, like these resource guarding tests, if new information becomes available to us, we need to be open to it. So we are also working on incorporating everything that we stay on top of, these new studies, so we can share that information with everyone else too. So our biggest focus will absolutely be education for shelter staff and volunteers through the use of different websites and apps and hopefully empower as many people as possible to help us in this mission because it is it does take a village and it's a huge effort. But definitely back to your question, did this whole loop around <laughs> is Instagram is definitely yeah our go to. So check us out and what we do and how we're we're changing the lives of these dogs every single day and as usual i'll make sure i link to all of that in the show notes sarai thank you so much for all you're doing and for coming on the show i really had a great conversation with you so thank you thank you so much for having me michael i appreciate it I truly want to send my deep appreciation to Sada for her dedication to shelter dogs and for sharing her journey with us. Her story is so inspirational and she's such an incredible gift to our community. And don't forget, Sada will be presenting at the Aggression in Dogs conference this year. You can head on over to aggressivedog.com for more information about the conference and to register. We have an incredible lineup of speakers this year, including Sue Sternberg, Dr. Christina Spaulding, Irit Bloom, Dr. Wailani Sung, Dr. Christine Calder, Dr. Tim Luce, and so many more. I hope to see you there. Thanks again for listening and stay well, my friends. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.